Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. You can find out more by visiting the website johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Naples Illustrated, bringing you infinite luxury lifestyles. The website is naplesillustrated.com. And when you go there, sign up for On the Town. It'll give you some of the highlights of the things that are going on here on the Paradise Coast. Of course, not much during the coronavirus scare, but pandemic, but nevertheless, uh, NaplesIllustrated.com. We have great guests for today's show, including Mark Schulman. Mark has uh, been on the show on Monday mornings for about the past decade, and we've been talking about current global events. Of course, the pandemic will be one of our top topics. We'll also visit with Larry Reed, the endowed, I should say, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. We're talking about the Black Death of the 14th century as a comparison to the pandemic we're experiencing now. And Jim McTagg, Jim is former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of Follow the Leader and its uh, sequel, uh, Shake the Money Tree. It is April the 13th, and on this day in 1743, future President Thomas Jefferson drafted drafter of the Declaration of Independence and the nation's preeminent political theorist was born on this day. Jefferson's character, as a man as our president, defied definition. He was enigmatic in so many ways. He was at once an intellectual, an architect, a philosopher, musician, and essayist. His fascination with science prompted him uh, his study and collection of fossils. He projected down-to-earth, relaxed, and unconventional attitude, and his desire to be seen as a common man was reflected in his penchant for receiving White House visitors in a robe and slippers. He denounced oppressive government and was a fierce opponent, or I should say proponent, of uh, freedom of speech and religion. He worried that fellow founding fathers George Washington, John Adams, and Alexander Hamilton had designs to fashion the American presidency after a monarchy. When Washington and Hamilton proposed a national bank and state assumption of national debt, he resigned from Washington's cabinet in protest. He adamantly rejected Hamilton's plan to build a strong federal military, fearing it might be used as a tyrannical leader against American citizens. And, of course, I think that helps to frame the thought of the day for the Second Amendment. Though Jefferson was highly principled, he was not above using smear tactics against political opponents. He anonymously assailed his victims in print under pseudonym and helped to fund the anti-federalist press. Although in theory Jefferson desired the abolition of slavery, it is in fact that Jefferson owned other human beings who worked in his plantation. Historical accounts indicate he treated his slaves well within the context of the times. It's long been rumored and debated by historians that one of his slaves, Sally Hemings, was Jefferson's lover. She bore a son named Eston in 1808, and it's, I think it's been proven by DNA that he was actually Thomas Jefferson's son. Uh, Jefferson's anti-federalist uh, policies and personal attacks on John Adams caused a huge falling out between the two former friends. After retirement, though, Adams and Jefferson rekindled their personal connection. The last two original revolutionaries living, Jefferson and Adams, died on the same day, July the 4th. 1826. Jefferson born on this day. Great American. 
Well, U.S. Uh, church leaders peppered the Eastern homilies, Easter homilies with references of the coronavirus on Sunday in masses and held online on television and even parking lots to people sheltering in cars to maintain social distancing during the pandemic. For the world's largest Christian population, the coronavirus pandemic has meant observing Easter Sunday unlike any other Americans ever lived through before. We watched the uh, live broadcast of the First Baptist Church in Dallas. I've had a huge choir. They made a point of pointing out that they it were pre-recorded the the choir with about 300 members, and it was uh, quite moving and inspirational. In Cuyahoga County, 352 people have tested positive for coronavirus, according to Sunday uh, Saturday evening's advisory. 49 have been hospitalized with COVID-19, as the number statewide has swelled to more than 2,500. A statewide effort to curb the spread of the novel. Coronavirus means more and more employees in Florida are working from home and residents are scaling back their non-essential trips outside. It also means fewer cars are on the road, and we've certainly seen that. So state of transportation officials are trying to take advantage of this and reduce traffic. The Florida Department of Transportation announced last week it would be speeding up critical infrastructure projects worth $2.1 billion across the state. The widening, of course, of Cuyahoga Boulevard is one of the issues going uh, US 41 from uh, US 41 going east. It's going to be accelerated by four weeks, which is good news. Uh, I rode uh, my bike with uh, Dr. George Markovich this weekend, and we had a great discussion. One of the things he pointed out about is we discussed herd immunity. It happens when so many people are in the community become immune to the infectious disease that it stops the disease from spreading. This can happen in two ways, of course. One is through vaccination, but the other is through many people contracting the disease and then building up immunity uh, naturally through their immune system. We're uh, finding COVID-19 is extremely infectious and extremely dangerous for those with compromised immune systems. In fact, 2,246 Americans have died at nursing homes from coronavirus in 24 states. Those are just uh, the ones we know about. The tally could be much higher. 11% of the total coronavirus deaths in the country today happen in uh, nursing homes. Otherwise, many are asymptomatic. And the death rate is similar to the flu. It's down below 0.4%. Latest statistics I've seen. Testing at a hospital in Chicago found that 30 to 50% of the patients who have been tested for COVID-19 have antibodies in their system, which means they likely already had the virus and are immune, at least for an unknown period of time. I've heard anything from three months to over a year. Now, while the U.S. shuts down all commerce for weeks and destroys the economy, other countries like Sweden and Brazil are doing the opposite and allowing the China coronavirus to run its course. President Trump, uh, I think, uh, may have should have considered another point of view aside from what's being pushed by Fauci and Burks. It's not too late, though. It's time to open up the U.S. economy before the damage is too great to reverse. Uh, some Democrats, for example, Michigan uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer prohibited big box retailers from in-person sale of seeds because, according to her, food is non-essential. In late March, uh, she uh, limited access to, of, of doctors of the prescribing of the life-saving drugs hydrochloroquine and z to save senior citizens. So uh, she's also, of course, allowed lottery tickets and other types of sales, but I, it just worries me to see that some officials are deciding to use the power they have for political purposes. 
the New York Times reported this weekend that Trump played down the seriousness of the virus in January, even though experts in both his cabinet and intelligence agencies sounded the alarm. He called the Times story just fake, just like the paper itself is fake. Trump has said that his decision to close the U.S. to China in early February was prescient, despite being panned in the media as xenophobic. The Times then reported that Fauci had grown bolder in his correct collecting or correcting Trump's publicly, and Fauci in turn has become a hero to the president's critics because of it. Fauci, for example, had publicly played down Trump's claim that hydrochloroquine. Uh, combined with uh, antibiotic could be a game changer. He also was asked on CNN Sunday about the Times report on Trump playing down the threat. I mean, obviously, he said, you could logically say that if you had a process that was ongoing and you started mitigation early, you could have saved lives. Well, kind of a trap question because that makes Trump look bad. And this is what this is all about, of course. Now we're beginning to see the uh, committees, uh, of course, Fauci had faced increasing criticism on conservative radio who see him as a career bureaucrat. He slammed, Fauci, by the way, slammed the media in the past for attempting to pit him against Trump. He is asked in March about reports of his relationship being on the rocks. He was asked on a radio show Morning on the Mall about question, questions from the media and how they uh, designed at times to create a rift between you and the president. He said, the president has listened to what I've said and to other people who are in the task force, he said. When I made recommendations, he's taken them. He's taken them to heart. He's been never countered, overridden me. The idea of just pitting one against the other is not helpful. I wish that we could stop that and we could look ahead at the challenges we have to get over this thing, said Fauci. So Democrats are beginning to circle the wagons. They want to begin an inquiry about the president. The mainstream media, and of course the Democrats in the uh, House, are, want to start committees to investigate in hindsight how the president has done in this whole thing. It's really too sad. You can see uh, how they are lining this up in order to combat the president going into the elections. Sad indeed. And by the way, we're so fortunate here on the Paradise Coast to have great weather. Mississippi and Louisiana, two states dealing with increase of coronavirus cases, were hit Sunday with a deadly storm that killed eight and just leveled so many different buildings. It's sad news indeed. Finally, a Florida's 2019 uniform report by the Florida Department of Law Enforcement marked the 49th consecutive year the state has seen a drop in crime. The crime rate in the state fell by 6.3% in 2019, with a 4.9% decrease in total index crimes and 26,128 fewer report offenses compared to 2018, which is great. Here in Cuyahoga County, we've seen a 1.3% decrease in an already very low uh, crime rate with a population of 376,000 folks. So interesting. By the way, futures are, are looking uh, at earnings going into this week, and uh, they're a little bit nervous right now. They're down about 250 as we speak. Although the president uh, lined up an oil deal between the Saudis and the Russians, so uh, stabilizing perhaps oil for the, but uh, that's not uh, assuaging market concerns. Again, the future's down about 250 points. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Naples Illustrated, bringing you infinite luxury lifestyles, the website 
is NaplesIllustrated.com. Okay, coming up, we're going to visit with Mark Schulman, the founded publisher of HistoryCentral.com, that and more, right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Shore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards with six full productions this season. But did you know that Gulf Shore Playhouse brings unique theater education programs and opportunities for children, teens, and adults alike? Education is a vital component of Gulf Shore Playhouse's mission, providing programs aimed at enriching the lives of our children, teens, and students of all ages. Each offering provides real-life skills and learning experiences that are invigorating, nurturing, and readily accessible to every member of our community thanks to the scholarships and reduced-price programming for our region's most deserving students. From in-school residencies and pre-professional theater training to community partnerships, audience engagement, and student matinees. The goal is to inspire creativity, encourage self-expression, and support the blossoming of self-confidence, collaboration, and a deep appreciation for the arts. With each passing year, Gulf Shore Playhouse continues to touch the lives of tens of thousands of students throughout Southwest Florida. Isn't it time that a young person in your life finds out more? For more information about student camps and the Teen Conservatory, visit the website golfshoreplayhouse.org. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Golf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. And, of course, this season canceled for the remainder of it, but uh, it's going to pick up again next season. I hope you'll take a look at the season. Great things on the website, too, golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Reed. He is uh, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. We'll be talking about the uh, Black Death in the 14th century. Right now we have with us Mark Schulman. Mark is an author. He's written several books, mainly on past presidents. He's also the author of a fantastic multimedia website. It's called HistoryCentral.com. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. It is a pleasure. And, of course, you are in Tel Aviv right now, waiting out the virus there. How is everything going in Israel? Generally speaking, okay. I mean, it, it, it's in better shape than most of the United States is in terms of both, I think just now they announced the 111th death, which is 
you know, it, not bad considering. Um, and about 11,000 people who have been um, infected, they worked quickly on one hand in terms of closing off uh, arrivals. They did it from China and all the Far East, literally about three or four days before the United States. They, uh, in Israel, it was a total shutdown. It wasn't like, don't let people from Chinese in. They didn't let anyone in. The Israelis who came in were forced to go into quarantine, and quickly that related to the whole rest of the world. So on one hand, they got a better, better command of that because of that. Um, on the other hand, there have been, like every, every place else, there are plenty of problems in terms of testing and everything else. That seems to be a worldwide problem. No one seems to be able to get their act together in terms of testing. Yeah, so, and it's, it's a conflicting information, too. Uh, Sweden, and I think it's Brazil, have uh, not closed down their countries, and the death rates are pretty similar. And uh, the, Well, Brazil, no, Sweden is, is spiraling out of control right now. Is it really? So, well, yeah, in any event... It really uh, is. Uh, so. Yes, the, in terms of in terms of perhaps hospital use and so forth, but the number of deaths is pretty pretty similar to the results that we're getting in other countries that have closed down. So, uh, the herd what do they call it? The herd immune uh, that that what they're doing there is you know the experience. Let's say. Uh, 0.4% of the population dying as a result of this, but they have uh, more, hum uh, the herd, what do they call it? immunity, I guess it would be. Herd immunity, yeah. Yeah, so uh, um, it's just two different ways to do it, but it does give indication that perhaps opening up sooner than later might be a good idea. Okay, maybe. Um, okay, Sweden is the same size as Israel. Mm-hmm. In terms of population. Yes. We had our 111th death, they have 899 deaths. Mm-hmm. So, no. Okay. So, uh, in any event, uh, one of the things uh, that's going on, of course, is the United States Post Office apparently is going to be running out of money very soon. Let's say June. I've heard other dates being September. What are your thoughts? Well, look, the only thing that the United States government almost is supposed to do actively, according to the Constitution, is provide a postal service. Right. So it seems to me that anyone who believes in the original intent of the Constitution, the United States government should be supporting the post office. I mean, the two problems the post office has, it was a law that was passed 15 years ago that it has to pre-fund all 70 years of potential pension liability, which no company does in the right, real world. Right, um, And um, listen, it, it also has to provide service to the person who lives in the furthest farm and the furthest distance, the further, you know, places that no one else provides service for. Right. And yet so in the meantime... It's not an economic... What? In the meantime, they're providing service to Amazon and losing money on each no, they delivery. Make, they, they make money on Amazon. They lose money on on, on regular mail. Um, they make money on the Amazon deal. That was a big. It's a big money maker for for the post office. The only reason they were able to keep above the water the last year or two is the package service that they've increased radically. Uh, radically. So that's so interesting so, because I I read it and it's been a while so maybe things have changed that the prices they were uh, charging were uh, you know they they can't make it up a volume because the the price is lower than what it costs to actually deliver the package. As far as I understand it, the whole deal with Amazon has been is a profit center for the post office. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, well, we'll have so to check that out. For the problem, look, the problem. It's a very absurd situation. I mean, of all the two 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 point two trillion dollars that are being given, none could go to the post office. Yeah. With seems a little, you know, plus the 600,000 employees there. I don't think we need another 600,000 unemployed in the United States right now. Yeah. Um, I do wonder, though. Again, it, it, provides, it provides an essential service. I don't think people understand, until you don't have a post office, what it's like not to have a post office. Right. Not to be, I mean, in Israel, I've discovered that the post office is kind of, 
catch as catch can. You can mail a letter, a check. I know someone who mailed a check to somebody, and six weeks later it showed up. So, uh, Mark, so let me ask you a pointy question. Let me ask you a pointy question. If you had something very important, for example, your tax papers or whatever that you needed to mail, would you use the United States Post Office? If it's essential, I would question question it. Although I had a business for many years until about ten years ago when I sold it. When I was using the post office for deliveries, we made history products, history shopping. It was called. We made uh, naval hats and things of that nature, and we always used the post office. Yeah. And they were quite reliable, to be honest with you. Yeah. You know, sometimes we used UPS, sometimes we used the post office, depending on the price and where it was going, etc. Right. Uh, so they were quite reliable. If it's Essential that it gets there tomorrow? No, I'll send it to FedEx if it's essential it gets there tomorrow. All right. If it's essential it gets there, it's okay. I'll send the post office. Oh, so interesting. And remember the difference in price. You know, a letter costs 2 $3 at the moment. I mean, even less these days, but still. And, uh, you know, FedEx, the minimum is, what, uh, $10. $18 for overnight? Yeah. So, yeah, no, you, great point. Uh, the, the point I'm leading to is that, uh, you know, while the United States Post Office is essential as part of the Constitution, the other side of it, it could be uh, operate as a as a department with using and uh, outsourcing a lot of the work to companies like UPS. Uh, maybe, but uh, for a, a, they don't have the. First of all, let's keep in mind the fact that the other companies right now are stretched to the limit because of the current crisis. I mean, yeah. the number of uh, packages being delivered is up tremendously right. uh, because of. So to talk about that now is an absurdity. You want to talk a long-term strategy? That's something else altogether. Yeah, well, I, I, right am, spe we need I am speaking of a long-term strategy. That was what I was bringing up. But you're absolutely right. We can't be tinkering with things like this during this uh, coronavirus. We need to get through it uh, indeed. Right. We need to look. Look, there'll be plenty of time to have ideological questions about all sorts of matters, for instance, you know, and there are things, you know, go, do we give grants to, to airlines or do we give loans to airlines? A lot of different questions here. Yeah. But the reality is we have to get through this, and both both from a health standpoint and from an economic standpoint, and in both they're a real challenge. Um, so we need to find a way of doing it, and certainly, you know, not having the Postal Service would not be a good plan right now. Absolutely. I would agree with that. So, Mark, I want to talk about the implications of what we're dealing with right now a little bit more. Can you stick around? Absolutely, Bob. All right, we're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the uh, Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Lyndon and myself. Located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, Blue Provence offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. During the governor's stay-at-home notice, Blue Provence is offering pick-up curbside takeout options five nights a week, Tuesday through Saturday. To place an order, just call 261-8239 Tuesday through Saturday from 4 to 7 p.m. A 20% discount will be applied on all food orders during these unprecedented times. Compliment your order with amazing wines from the Blue Provence Retail Wine Store, offering amazing choice and value. Blue Provence Wine Store is open Monday to Saturday, 9 to 12 p.m., and has one of the most eclectic and fun wine cellars, offering 10% off cases. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. 
Do you have an extra auto you'd like to donate to charity? Maximize your tax deduction, support your favorite charity, and help a local child in need by calling Naples Auto Donation Center. Naples Auto Donation Center is a not-for-profit licensed car dealer. Just call NADC at 692-9840 and they'll take it from there. You get a properly documented tax deduction for whatever the vehicle actually sells for. Your designated beneficiary charity gets half the profit after fix-up costs and the net revenue generated by NADC goes to Friends of Foster Children to provide tutoring and other enrichment activities for foster children the government doesn't provide. And NADC is also one of the few places in Collier County that sells inexpensive cars that actually run to folks who would otherwise not be able to afford one. It's a real win-win. Call Naples Auto Donation Center at 692-9840 or visit the website nadckids.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. I hope you visit the website, thefga.org. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Jim McTagg. He is an author. He's also the former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. Right now, we continue the conversation with Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. Again, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Bob. So, Mark, we've got all 50 states now under a major disaster declaration, Wyoming becoming the last. We've also got all the territories, and the president says the most important decision or difficult decision he's ever going to make or ever has made will be opening up this economy. So what are your thoughts right now? Well, let's start with the fact he doesn't make the decision. Uh, He's mistaken who's going to make this decision are going to be the individual governors and the individual uh, mayors, because they have the power in our federalist system. president has almost no power when it comes to, to all of these matters. It will be up to the governors and the mayors to do it. Um, I, I don't think there's one decision that can be made. You can't say, oh, well, let's open the economy. You can say, let's slowly do X, Y, and Z. And I think what we have to think about is how we can do that. Because, you know, one of the problems we have right now is it seems on a national basis we are flattening the curve. New York City is certainly flattened, looks like it's flattened the curve. I mean, flattening the curve doesn't mean things are all well. I mean, it means that it's not growing anymore, but there's still seven, eight hundred dollars. They say it's seven, eight hundred deaths a day, and you still have mm-hmm. five to seven thousand new people being uh, infected every day. So that's not exactly a good situation. It just means it's not getting out of control. Right. The curve is flattening. So first things we have to think about is it's not only flattening, we need to see the curve going down. We need to have less people being infected, and we need to look at a way we get to maybe not zero, but to a very small number. And the way we have to do that is we have to be in a situation where you, we're able to find every new person and be able to epidemically, epidemiologically see who they came in contact with and find them and put them into, into containment so they don't affect any additional, to test them and to see that they don't, don't come into additional, into additional contact. Because there's no question that the um, closing down the economy, closing down you know, personal interactions has worked. Mm-hmm. We can't do this forever, though. Right. So we need to find a way to slowly open up certain things and be testing in tremendous numbers. And every time you open something up, test to make sure that every time you find someone who's infected, you immediately clamp down in that particular cluster of people. So you need a, a level of awareness and activity. Probably the states will do this. It won't be done by the national government. could be, but it won't be. 
Um, but it has to be in place in every single state that opens up um, because there's going to be no other solution. Mm-hmm. Then we're going to have to have a situation where we have a quick test that anyone gets on an airplane before they get on an airplane. We can test them. Mm-hmm. Um, because who's going to want to go onto an airplane if you know that someone else on the plane could have the virus unless you yourself are immune? Well, absolutely. In fact, it's just good business. If you want to sell airline tickets, you better make sure that you can assure your passenger that all precautions are being taken to protect their health. Right. So the only way to do that is to be in a situation where we literally have an instant test or a relatively instant test, and literally anyone who gets on an airplane, that's what they did in Wuhan, by the way, in China, is people got different levels of of status, and people with green status meant they could move around without any limitations. Mm Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, as disgusting as that sounds and very un-American, we're going to have to do something similar because it's the only way to open the economy is to do something where we know, you know, who's not infected, who is safe to be at work. And if there's a mistake and someone gets infected, we can immediately push back and, and find that person before he moves and infects six other people. Well, I think, the, it, to me, I think you're absolutely right. The governors will make this decision. However, the president's point of view about this, he's going to come up with a plan. He's going to recommend the plan. Governors will either buy in or won't buy in, as has happened in the past. So, I, But he has tremendous, well, the bully pulpit, we'll call it. I mean, he has tremendous influence and also has control of a lot of resources now that that this uh, pandemic has led to disaster relief of nationally. So... Uh, I, I agree with what you're saying. However, I think each individual business wanting to do business will take precautions in opening up. And to your point, the airlines will certainly have to take greater precautions than, let's say, a, fi- a farm in Wyoming. Be, but you can't, leave it to indiv- you can't totally leave it to individual businesses because keep in mind the fact that each individual business has personally a great incentive to open because... He needs the money, right? Let's right. be honest here. You don't want to be homeless. You don't want to lose your business. You have a great personal incentive to open regardless. And you're not thinking about so much, well, you know, people may get infected if they come into my store or into my factory or whatever it might be. You're thinking about your bottom line because you need the money desperately and I understand that. But it's the public health people who have to worry on a greater level to make sure that by opening these, this business, it's not creating a public health danger. Well, I would and say this, course, Mark. One, I think one business opening doesn't make a difference, obviously. But when a thousand businesses open simultaneously, that that's when you run into real trouble. So, but but a business person, obviously, if you're running a business, you want your employees to be healthy. You it costs money to lose people in the process of running a business. So you have to make sure your customers feel health feel comfortable that with health precautions as your employees as well. So it seems to me that I'm I'm a little concerned with a a top-down solution to this. I would prefer a top-down guidelines, but individual implementation based on how businesses feel about, you know, continuing. But, 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 but the problem, that's the, always the problem of what, you know, the, the traditional problem of the commons, right? In other words, everyone will get be concerned about their individual business, and I understand that. And mm-hmm. They're not going to want their, their people to become sick. However, look at what just happened. I forgot the name of the company, but the largest... Um, the largest meat processor in the United States. Purdue, I think it was. his employees just came down with COVID-19, and they had to close. Yep. Now, would they have preferred not to have anyone with COVID-19? Of course they would. They didn't want to have to close. Uh, so sometimes these things become unavoidable, and sometimes they're not even in the, in the power of the business. You know, in other words, the employee, one of the employees got sick, not in the business. He got sick, you know, outside, visited a friend. Who knows how he got sick? Right. Came to business, and... Somehow, you know, it's really hard in a place like that to not spread it. We're not going to put everybody inside, you know, spacesuits. 
at this point. We, you know, we don't, we don't have them. We can't, people can't afford to work that way. Right. So my, my point is we need an overall strategy. Um, like I said, it, you're right, the fact that the, the, the government as a whole could, could present what the strategy should be, um, but it's going to be up to the states to find the ways of implementing it. It's not going to be easy. No, it's That's not. That's thing I want to say. It is not going to be easy, and some things are going to take a long, long time to come back. So while factories might come back a little bit sooner, it's hard to see when you when it's going to be safe to go into a mall, let's say. Oh, absolutely. It's certainly hard, Abs- hard to see when you go to a concert again or, or a theater or any of these sort of things. Well, of course, I mean, uh, who who would possibly want to go to a baseball game uh, under the current circumstances? I mean, you'd rather watch it on TV because, you know, your personal health is... I mean, I think everybody has their own self-interest. People are not going to want to go to work unless their employers can ensure them that they're in a safe environment. I mean, so uh, my point is right, this. Right, but, but I understand something. Uh, pe- different people have different levels of risk. So if you're young and healthy, you're going to say, you know what? My risk factor is low. Even if I get it, it's going to be just a bad cold. Maybe a little bit more. I mean, there are there's certainly been cases of people who are young who've gone on ventilators, and but they've usually survived because the young managed to survive that. Right. But still, not exactly pleasant to say the least. And right. Spend a couple of weeks in the hospital. So, but generally speaking, if you're young and healthy, you say, well, you know what, I need the money. I'm going to take the risk, etc. The only problem is, somehow in the course of his day, that young person is going to meet some older people. Right. And those older people unless they're cocooned inside their houses and don't see anybody, don't come into contact, are much more susceptible to not as good an outcome, let's put it that way. Yeah, so we have a, the big risk we have right now is no vaccine. If we had a vaccine, we could certainly allow the herd immunity uh, to take the over. If we have a vaccine, this problem is, is over. Right. I mean, even if it has an 80%, 90% success rate, not 100% success rate. You know, I was just reading back in 1955, it was yesterday in 1955, so that was... Uh, April 12th, 1955, it was announced that the polio vaccine was safe and 100% successful. Mm-hmm. Bells, church bells rang, parades began, everyone took a day off from work. You know what, I, I remember that day so well because I remember I couldn't go out and play when I was a kid. I remember all the limitations on my activities and how much it changed the entire country. The fear of polio, people going into these terrible situations, uh, just it, it was just absolutely awful. So yeah, the vaccine is going to make such a big difference and, and apparently the FDA is allowing fast tracking so we could have something as soon as four months. Right. No, quite clearly. I mean, the big hope here is that by September, October, let's put it that way, that there's a vaccine that's approved, and it'll take at least another two or three months to get it, uh, you know, through the whole country, but or in the whole world, basically. The whole world's going to want it, and someone's going to have to fund to make sure that it's produced in large enough quantities, and it, and it, it needs to, it needs somehow to be given out to everybody for free because it doesn't help us if everyone doesn't get it. We need we need a vaccine that is universal, that is uh, administered universally. Um, and if we do that, then we don't have to worry about traveling. We don't have to worry about all these things. So Absolutely. Let's just hope. That's the, that, that's the, that's the hope. Um, let's just hope this virus also doesn't manage to mutate, which is the, the fear. Right. So, so we have a, a Mark. I tell you what. I, you know, we're ending this conversation. I think in violent agreement here. So, <laughs> which is which is great. But I just genuinely appreciate your commentary. I hope our listeners actually uh, understood it and and uh, dealt with uh, the nuances of our of our points of view. But nevertheless, I think we're on a way to a solution. I think ultimately we will win. The coronavirus will not. We absolutely will win eventually. Just. We, we, let's hope that, that that light at the end of the tunnel 
is not so far away that uh, many, many more months of this because it's it's difficult. We all know it's not e- it's not easy living this kind of life. The no, change that it, that it brings upon all of us. Absolutely is challenging. Mark, I genuinely appreciate your commentary. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great week, Bob. You as well. Thank you. He's, of course, in Tel Aviv right now. And, uh, again, check out HistoryCentral.com. Okay, coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Reed, the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For the best in food and drink, as well as great live entertainment, go to the Dog 2 Sports and Music Bar. Formerly known as Weekend Willie's, the Dog 2 Sports and Music Bar has terrific new local owners offering a great new upscale decor and a fabulous new menu. Linda and I are weekly regulars to hear live blues, but you can stop by anytime for great food and drink, to watch your favorite sporting event, or to hear great live entertainment five nights a week. The Dog 2 Sports and Music Bar is located at 5310 Shirley Street, just off Pine Ridge Road, and it's open from 11 a.m. until close every day. Visit the website dogtoothnaples.com or call 431-7004. That's 431-7004. I hope we'll see you there. As Southwest Florida is impacted by the coronavirus crisis, the organizations that provide relief and support to our community's most vulnerable population are finding their resources stretched. For 32 years, St. Matthew's House has provided food, shelter, and comfort to those struggling with poverty, food insecurity, and homelessness. St. Matthew's House is the only emergency homeless shelter in Cuyahoga County, sheltering more than 300 men, women, and children every night and providing more than 500,000 meals each year to those in need. For those who have shelter but are food insecure, direct assistance is offered through the St. Matthew's House food pantry and grocery distribution. Donations of food, hygiene supplies, detergent, diapers, and monetary support are needed curbside drop-off is available at St. Matthew's House Main Thrift Store at 2601 Airport Road, South Naples. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization that does not solicit government funding. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org or call 239-774-0500. That's 774-0500. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Golf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. And you can find out more by visiting the website, golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTigg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of Shake the Money Tree. Right now we have with us Larry Reed. Larry is the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, it's always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you. Uh, Larry, tell us about the Foundation for Economic Education. Okay. FEE is an educational foundation dependent upon uh, contributions, not government funding for its uh, work. We focus on high school and college students, and we endeavor to inspire and educate them on ideas of liberty, free enterprise, private property, and personal character. We do that with a very vibrant website called, uh, or at, I should say, fee, F-E-E dot org, 
and through seminars uh, and presentations all over the world. All over the world, indeed, a terrific organization. And you know, w with regard to liberty, you have to own both ends of the stick. You got to pick up the stick, both ends of it, and that would include not only freedom but responsibility. And that is the core yeah. mission of the Foundation for Economic Education, FEE.org. So, Larry, you wrote a great and timely piece about the Black Death and the coronavirus lessons from the 14th century. Maybe you can tell us about it. Okay. Uh, this episode of uh, a virus pandemic in the 14th century was the worst uh, in all of human history. Uh, it killed between uh, a third and a half of the population of Europe, and quite likely uh, similar numbers uh, in the east uh, part of Asia. In any event, uh, it began in Europe in 1347, uh, and the uh, site where it really uh, emanated from was the Crimean port city of Kaffa on the Black Sea. Uh, it was populated by merchants and their families from Genoa, uh, which is, of course, in Italy. And, but it was uh, being laid siege to by the Mongols, and they had brought uh, a virus uh, with them from China. Mm. And uh, just before... Um, they were uh, retreating from the siege. They'd just about given up because uh, their own numbers had been so decimated by the virus that uh, uh, they uh, decided to stage one last assault. They uh, used their catapults and catapulted their dead, the dead bodies uh, from their own ranks, over the walls and into the city, at which time then the, uh, the people from inside uh, got on their boats to get out of there but they went back to uh, Italy, which then uh, became the epicenter of the plague uh, uh, throughout all of Europe. And we know it today as the bubonic plague or the Black Death. Unbelievable story. Imagine just using catapults in order to throw dead, <laughs> the dead bodies of people yeah. that died from the disease. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, so, I mean, uh, what, what do you think the lessons might be for us today from uh, the, the plague in, in the 14th century? Well, of course, in, in, in those days, we knew so little compared to today about the science of diseases like this. Uh, we didn't fully understand, uh, as we do now, the importance of keeping your distance uh, uh, from someone who has it. We didn't know then for sure how it was transmitted. Now we know uh, by uh, rats and the fleas that they carried. That's what uh, really was the, those were the culprits in the spread of the Black Death or the bubonic plague. Um, well, I guess among those things, uh, we also uh, should learn today that <laughs> there are better things to do with dead bodies than put them on your catapults right. and send them over a wall. <laughs> well, and of course, the, the, uh, in the day, of course, uh, the uh, medicine was in its infancy in terms of understanding what, what's going on in immunology and all that, but... Uh, Apparently, some some uh, in some quarters they are using it as dis for discrimination against Jews, gypsies, and others, blaming it on them that they had actually brought the virus. Yeah, that's right. Uh, they did all kinds of things back then to uh, uh, try to combat the virus, and uh, most of what they did made little sense. It wasn't rooted in science, and sometimes it verged on uh, uh, the fanaticism and. Uh, and as you pointed out, anti-Semitism, there were people in Europe who blamed the Jews for it, and uh, the gypsies were blamed for it sometimes, and that led to all kinds of uh, persecutions and even massacres. 
but it was quite a devastating plague. It wiped out uh, uh, almost half of the city of London by the time it got uh, uh, to Britain in 1349. Yeah, exactly. Tell us about the Decameron. That's one of the things that you mentioned in your column. Yeah, the Decameron is a very good source of information on uh, the Black Death and its impact. It, it was written by Giovanni uh, Boccaccio, and it is regarded as a masterpiece of classical early Italian prose. But it's set during the Black Death. Uh, the Decameron is a collection, in fact, of a hundred tales told by a group of seven uh, young women and three young men. They're hunkered down in self-imposed quarantine as they waited out the uh, pandemic. And uh, uh, the stories that they tell range from the erotic to the tragic to the comic, uh, from frivolous practical jokes to some very meaningful life lessons. And if you uh, want to read a firsthand account uh, of this uh, terrible period in history, uh, that's a good place to start, the Decameron. Yeah, so interesting indeed. And, of course, uh, uh, I think right now uh, they they got through it, that pandemic, and they lost half. If you can imagine the population, I think you mentioned in London, 100,000 people, half of the population died because of the virus. So if I'm not mistaken, it was London or Paris, one of the two. In any event, uh, very tragic losses indeed. We do have we're much more sophisticated, but, uh, again, Larry, I just genuinely appreciate your commentary on this. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. And check out fee.org. If you have a young person in your life, and I realize we're going through this pandemic, but uh, do check out fee.org. Introduce it to anybody between the ages of 16 and 25. Uh, you'll be glad you did. All right, coming up, I'm going to visit with Jim McTagg. He is a former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of Shake the Money Tree. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs> Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you or a family member suffer from chronic pain in your knees, hips, or shoulders? Joint pain can be a nagging and serious problem requiring expert and compassionate care. I know I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. Until 2006, I was suffering debilitating pain and deformity in my knees. I couldn't enjoy biking or golf or even sleep without chronic pain as a constant companion. Thanks to Dr. George Markovich and the professional staff at the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, my pain is gone, and I'm back to doing the activities I enjoy with no pain. I have a lifestyle I can only imagine. Imagine prior to knee surgery, and you can too. Call the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. They will thoroughly evaluate your condition, provide personalized, state-of-the-art treatment, and help you relieve your pain and get back to your active lifestyle. At the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, your care will be professionally managed through every phase of your recovery. For an initial consultation, call the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, located off Tamiami Trail in Bonita Springs at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. You listen to The Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulabee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com. 
Tom to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-389 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. Of course, that's not going to happen until after this pandemic, but uh, it'll be very helpful. You can find out more by visiting the website, thefga.org. We have with us, as I mentioned before the break, Jim McTagg. Jim is the former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. Whoops, what did I do? I pushed the wrong button. I apologize for that. He's also the author of two terrific Murder Mysteries, uh, the first is Follow the Leader, and the second is Shake the Money Tree. Jim McTagg, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure, Bob. Thank you, Jim. So uh, I want to uh, talk to you about what's happening uh, with regard to the coronavirus and opening up the economy. Before we do, uh, notice that the uh, uh, president called Jonathan Carl, who's the head, I guess, the head of the uh, press, the White House press group, he called uh, him a cutie pie. That's part of the back and forth of the president. But the point is this, that somehow, some way, we ended up with a Chinese communist propaganda paper being represented in the press corps. Who's, who's looking after all this stuff? And, and who allows these people to come in? Who's cho- making the choices on this? You know, it's kind of mysterious because um, I was a member of the White House press corps beginning with um, <coughs> Bill Clinton, uh, all the way through the uh, early months of the uh, Trump administration. Uh, and the Trump administration actually yanked my hard pass uh, hmm. because they wanted to make room for um, non-traditional press. I mean, there's a limited number of uh, so-called hard passes. I called it a Disney pass, where you can pretty much go in and out of the White House as you please. Other uh-huh. press have to call up the White House press office, be put on a long list, and hope that they be admitted. Hmm. So uh, there's a hassle if you don't have the hard pass. Now, I was the first journalist from Barron's ever to get a White House hard pass. Hmm. The journal had it. Now, the White House Correspondents Association has a role in selecting, you know, in approving the people for the uh, press pass. That's part of it. And they're very cliquish. So that if you don't fit a mold like, uh, you know, uh, Barron's for years was considered too niche a publication. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but then uh, under the Clinton administration, when when economics was so important in the day to day news cycle, uh, we got uh, picked. Yeah. Uh, the, the the White House has a role in this too. It does. So you men- you mentioned. So I think there's. Um, some politics involved from the White House and who gets a White House press pass. Uh, that part of the uh, selection process is a mystery to me, but uh, let me point out, we've always had questionable uh, press representatives from uh, foreign and domestic enterprises. Uh, when I was there and um, the Russians uh, uh, had, you know, uh, Pravda had, had, had a uh, journalist there, and everybody knew that uh, this Pravda journalist was a spy uh hmm. that was an open secret uh they had uh 
representative from uh, Middle East publications who were also uh, intelligence agents. Uh, huh. we, there, there's a guy still on the White House staff that's sort of a clown show. He's a distraction. You know, when the press secretary needs to uh, avoid some tough questions, he calls on this guy, Goyle, G-O-Y-A-L, who's a, a, an Indian America who, American who claims to represent the biggest papers on the subcontinent, but in fact, he doesn't. He once uh, published a weekly newspaper in Northern Virginia for Indian uh, immigrants, and he runs some kind of strange business on the side where he helps uh, Indian Americans with visa problems uh, navigate (laughs) the uh, immigration system. So you wonder, and he's been over there for uh, decades. So, So you just wonder, you know, how, what the heck is he doing with a, with a hard pass? Yeah. So, so it really depends on the administration, too. I mean, uh, during the Bush administration, uh, you would get a lot more journalists who had um, evangelical religious uh, affiliations. I, I can remember two, two journalists who had hard pass. Uh, that was clearly the... Um, you know, at the behest of the White House, not the White House Correspondents Association. Yeah, so, so my comment would be this, Jim, and of course I, I certainly respect the fact that uh, you've been a frequent guest on the show and a great guest, always well-prepared, always informative. But the, the White House press pass, first of all, it looks like there's a degree of groupthink going on. There's a culture there. They tend to be anti-Trump, you know, kind of setting up the, the questions like uh, this, you know, you have a lot of happy talk, President. Mr. President, you've this is Jim Acosta, you've been and uh, people are saying that you just come up to the stage and do happy talk. <laughs> and the point is that he puts Jim Acosta down. Of course, I think most of the press corps takes offense to this behavior on his part. But the, the other side of this is I think they have an agenda coming into the, uh, into the uh, press meeting. What, do you, what are your thoughts? Well, clearly some of them have an agenda coming in. I can re- recall when, uh, when President uh, 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 Bush uh, was elected, uh, you know, this is W. Yeah. When W was elected, yep. I was shocked because before a press conference, a reporter from the Fort Worth Star-Telegram stood up and announced uninvitedly to the entire press corps, I'm going to get this guy. Yeah. You know, so clearly there was an anti-Bush agenda, you know, and, and, and he made no secret of it. And, and uh, he wasn't shouted down by his uh, colleagues. Right. Um, so clear, clearly... Uh, there is a bias. But the other thing is, is when they introduce television cameras to the press room, uh, a lot of these uh, reporters from smaller organizations began preening and, and, and yeah. trying to advance their career, careers on television by yeah. uh, asking outrageous yeah. questions, trying to generate the buzz and controversy. And, and a lot of the questions had really nothing to do with, uh, uh, with the serious business of government. So, so you know, during the Clinton administration, you had people asking, what, would you wear boxer shorts? You know, uh, stupid, yeah. idiotic questions like that. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that struck me, uh, because I was a very serious journalist and I was always prepared, and I always asked an economics question straight, you know, no spin. Yeah. You get a lot of spin on these questions. Sure. Is the low intellectual caliber of a lot of the press corps. I mean, uh, it's uh, you, t- you talk about income disparity in this 
country being stark. I think intellectual uh, gifts in the in the press room uh, are starkly divided. You have some very very intelligent. Uh, uh, gifted, uh, knowledgeable people, and, th- and then you have uh, a bunch of dunces, again, who are, who are just there for uh, shameless self-promotion. Yeah, you make a great point, because, uh, yes, certainly some of these press members, you can tell the president respects them, they ask good questions, and that they are on point, and, and then others are, are ridiculous, and I hadn't even thought about the TV aspect of this and the career building that people are looking forward to, but some, some of these people just seem to have a dearth of economic education, don't truly understand how the economy works, and as a consequence, ask pretty irrelevant and stupid questions. Yeah. Well, uh, the other thing is that most of, I don't know how good the Trump administration is at this. Uh, Obama was great at this, and uh, uh, Clinton was great at this, but they can, their press people could anticipate uh, what the reporters were going to ask. And they knew this because you know, there's some interaction with the uh, press spokesman and his staff and, and the uh, press people before the news conference. So uh, they would prepare a laundry uh, list for the press secretary, uh, you know, with a, a name of a, a reporter, and this is the probable thing he will ask. Ah. And so that that's why, uh, you know, after they ask the, uh, traditionally they used to ask the Associated Press to, to ask the first question, uh, they pick and choose based on uh, they want somebody to ask a particular question because it's it's to the president's benefit to have that question asked, mm-hmm. and the press secretary is loaded for bear. So then somebody uh, like me, uh, I wasn't called on that much because I was a big question mark. Mm-hmm. You know, what will he ask us? Will we have the answer? And if we don't have the answer, it will look terrible. So the uh, the only time I really got called on was uh, I didn't have an assigned seat, but because I worked for Dow Jones when the reporter from the Wall Street Journal wasn't there, I got to sit in his seat in the second row. And the um, press secretary uh, would forget that I was with Barron's and think I was with the journal and call on me. <laughs> so this, what interesting insights, Jim. We would have never known this and never found this out. It's so interesting to talk to you about this, and I appreciate it. The president, of course, George uh, W. Bush, W. would just... Uh, he would just accept these criticisms, these questions. When did you stop beating your wife types of questions, you know? And uh, the president right now, he just retaliates on stage. It's so interesting. Fake news, all these comments. Now, I realize this offends some people, and certainly the press corps, because they feel, individually, they feel offended by the, you know, the, the attack on the press like this. On the other hand, the president is preserving and uh, fighting back what I think is really groupthink. So uh, I just salute him on that. Well, yeah, no, I don't mind his pushback uh, because some of the questions are outrageous. I, w- I wish he was um, a little more elegant and a little more witty, but that's not him. He's, he's, I call him President Blunt Force Trauma. You know, he, he... <laughs> that's exactly right. And you want to, quite frankly, Jim, and I, I realize this is just my opinion, but I love him for it. So, <laughs> well, well, you know, to another point, uh, this pandemic. I mean, it will, it will be an important issue, and yeah. it will sway some voters who are who are disturbed by his leadership style. On the other hand, the cultural wars are not dead, and I think a major issue will be uh, Tara Reid versus uh, uh, the um, who was it Chris, Christine uh, Blasey Ford. Yeah, you know, she was the accuser of Brent, Christine Blasey Ford was Brent Kavanaugh's accuser. Uh, we have Tara Reid accusing Joe Biden 
of a sexual assault in Congress in 1993. Yeah, it's so interesting. And so far, the only publication that's treated this is the New York Times. They had a story yesterday. Yeah. And it was uh, it was hard to find the story, and they sort of blew it off. That's but exactly it, right. As, as right-wing commentators correctly point out, her accusation is as strong as the accusation of Christine Blasey Ford against Brett Kavanaugh. Oh, well, strongly. In, in other words, it's he said, she said. Yeah. And yet the uh, left wing is completely ignoring this woman's accusation. Yeah. Uh, that just drives uh, the the right wing people up the wall. This kind of uh, smug hypocrisy. Oh, no and question. So uh, you know that's why I don't see Trump's base eroding significantly in this pandemic unless he opens the economy too soon, and as a consequence, there's a uh, you know a huge uh, increase in deaths. Then, All right. Then it's a, you know ball game over for Trump, but I don't think he'll do that. Jim, I just genuinely appreciate this commentary. Again, the name of the book, uh, check, uh, check out Shake the Money Tree by Jim McTagg. It's M-C capital T-A-G-U-E. Jim, genuinely appreciate your commentary. Thanks for joining us. It's always fun, Bob. Thank you. My pleasure indeed. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. we got great guests lined up for tomorrow. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. <laughs> so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com. <laughs>